This is The Miller's Tale, Episode 7. Welcome to The Miller's Tale, Episode 7, with me, your host, Mike Whittaker. Um, I would like to apologise profusely that this has been a little bit longer than promised, which should be becoming far too regular a thing, I'm afraid. I do have a good excuse this time. My son has spent a sizeable chunk of May in hospital due to that common teetotal teenage affliction a liver abscess which i would have thought is more suited to the likes of some of our more hard drinking all gaming colleagues uh but needless to say he's had a bit of a rubbish couple of weeks plus he's now in hospital every day for an hour for iv antibiotics so my free time uh, seems to mostly have gone on catching up with the fact that i'm supposed to be in work during the afternoon um so I've just about managed to keep the hobby streak going. And, well, here we are. Um, James is much better, um, fortunately. So, um, yeah, let's, let's get on with the show. First up then, feedback. Uh, this might be quite a short section, largely because I haven't had much. Um, a number of people said nice things on Twitter about the responsibilities of Wargamers and putting on a show game piece in the last one, so um, I'm kind of, kind of glad that I seem to have been on the right track with that. But other than that, um, it's been quite quiet, but then so have I, so... What can you do? News. Okay, so I think there's only one major news topic, but before I get into that, We'll catch up on the, the doings of Harrowwood Wargame Show, since, damn it, it's my podcast and I can. It is still not too late for trade stand requests, though we may start operating a waiting list fairly soon. It's certainly not too late if you fancy putting on a game for us to let us know what you have in mind. Uh, we'll be sending out confirmations this week, I believe, uh, as that is not my department this year as I ever lovely and distinctly more organised than me, Secretary Colin will be handling that. Um, what else? Uh, there will be a painting competition. I think I mentioned that last time. Um, the, the formal rules and category definitions for that will be going up on the website this week. 
in short, it is Sunday, September the 1st, at the usual venue. Uh, admission is a fiver or three quid if you book in advance online. And we'd love to see you. Right, so, we can't ignore the elephant in the room. The only piece of hobby news that seems to be on everybody's lips so far this um, month, really, is... Games Workshop's Citadel Contrast Paints. Now, I may in the past have sworn off Games Workshop forever, uh, and I may even have pointed out with great delight on numerous occasions that Games Workshop do not mention the word war games in their promotional literature, annual reports, etc. anywhere. But the fact remains that they exist, and they are a very interesting concept. If for some bizarre reason you've been hiding under a rock for the last heaven knows how long they are essentially they are quite thick washes i think is probably the best description that they're basically thick enough that unlike say one of the typical army painter washes which goes very nearly completely transparent in the uh in the highlight areas and pulls in the shadows it still deposits a fair bit of pigment on your your more highlit areas. Now, the trick with these is that you do them over a very smooth and very light undercoat by design. Now, obviously, GW have money that they would like to pot you from, so they provide some a couple of spray undercoats that are supposedly very smooth and designed to complement the paints one of which is a neutral gray and one of which is a slightly warmer sort of pale linen-y color and experiments from various people online suggest that there are other kind of undercoats you can use and you can do clever stuff by for example sticking it on top of metallics etc etc right so um i may have touched on this briefly when I was discussing gatekeeping the hobby in a couple of previous episodes, but needless to say, there are people who are up in arms about this range of paints because they allegedly take all the skill out of it, and, and I stand by what I said in a previous episode. I don't care. Speaking as a really rubbish painter, by my own admission, anything that makes it easier and look better for minimal effort for me um, is just fine, thank you. So yes, I do have a set on order. Um, I ordered from Element Games and then stupidly realised that I'd missed out the one colour I really wanted for trying out on my uh, Perry's War of the Roses figures, and they were sufficiently swamped that even though I corrected the mistake within 24 hours, it set my delivery time back until sometime next week so unlike quite a few people who are merrily posting away on twitter and proving that you can use games workshop paints with historical figures uh you're gonna have to wait which which actually might be a good thing because it means i can have a sneak peek at everybody else's and see what other tricks i can pull i have some games workshop dark ages figures lined up uh and i've deliberately picked the blandest, most neutral, least garishly bright um, Warhammer 40k type colours uh, I can to do those. As I said, I've got some War of the Roses figures that I want to do in Murray and Blue. Uh, I'm just not entirely sure 
that there is a sufficiently maroonish colour in the range, so I may have to do a little bit of mixing to produce something that works, which, again, should be interesting and educational. So, yeah, um, the other thing you will get out of me for that is a video. As you may have noticed, those of you who were uh, looking at my blog over the past few weeks, I did a video demonstrating Warworld Scenix's rather nice static grass applicator and their static grass layering spray, which are not news, but they are dead neat. And I seem to have got the video stuff for that sorted. So you will be seeing uh, a video of my ham-fisted attempts to use and abuse Games Workshop contrast paints, probably when I get back off vacation, as frankly, I need a holiday. <laughs> Okay, so that's the news. So this takes us on to what have I been up to? Well, quite a bit, actually. Despite um, family minor dramas, we have, between us, managed to uh, get a bit of time to ourselves and preserve what little sanity we have left. On the fun side... The club went to Partizan. For those of you who weren't there, we put on a game of Dan Mersey's Men Who Would Be King, which I still enjoy as, as a system, except when I make complete pigsies of activation rolls. But full credit to Andy McTaggart and the rest of his team for winning the Best Participation Game trophy, for which I think, well done, guys. Um, I can't claim over much credit. I think I've help paint the original boards but if you look out in the next store the next book one issue of wargame soldiers and strategy andy has written a nice little piece on the game with a map illustration courtesy of yours truly which will tell you everything we did and how it all went together uh, it's a very nice little game and we did have a lot of people around the table clearly enjoying themselves uh, and i think as i said credit goes to the folks in the club for demonstrating a lot of the stuff i was saying at the end of the last podcast in terms of getting people involved and generally putting on a good game next up posh lard as I, as i said in the previous podcast if we get enough people it'll, it'll all go ahead and we did and it did and it was awesome i got to rerun the infamous bloody Omaha game from salute with yet another iteration of the more tarted up again uh, beach boards uh, everybody seems to think he's getting better and better and i still keep noticing the odd little problem there are a couple of boards where the grass isn't quite perfect and I need to replace a broken gun on one of the gun emplacements. And there's the marsh boards. The water in the marsh boards is horrible. It was my first ever attempt to use woodland scenics with water. Uh, there are some massive bubbles in it which look like swamp, the swamp gas from hell. And it was done in my workshop. Back when my workshop had no heat in about March. And it took absolutely forever to set, and and I'm really not happy with those. So I suspect that next time Andy Miller comes around to do some scenery building, we will gouge some great holes in it with suitable power tools and redo the marsh bit. Because, as I said, I'm not happy with it. But other than that, the game went very well. Really enjoyed running that. I always do. 
Um, even compounded by having to get dragged away for a, a work call halfway through. But thank you to Carl, who also usefully knows how to run the game, for taking over what I did. We also had the guys from Gravesend, which is Phil and Jenny, if memory serves, with an absolutely fabulous Samerigli's Chain of Command uh, table, uh, which, if nothing else has reminded me that when I finally get round to assembling the very large stack of assorted World War II 15mm French Normandy buildings, they need back gardens and pavements and other things because one of the things that really made their table was the fact that they'd gone to town on every house having a back garden and it looked like a town rather than a bunch of buildings plonked on the table in hope. Uh, for which full marks and it was I'm told a great game uh, the other game was um, Richard Crawley's lovely little um, Monton 1940 Italian invasion of France otherwise known as Mussolini currying favour with the Germans uh, which I played at crisis point uh, and is a brilliant little game it's 20 mil which is quite nice it's a, it's a scale that I don't think we see enough of particularly for those of us who grew up on Airfix Plastics, where it was the only game in town. But it's it's an interesting game, as I think I've said before, and people seem to enjoy it. So only the three games, only about a dozen people, including a brief visit from, from the Mighty Ducks himself, Mr Clark. And um, we will be doing one again next year, and hopefully we'll get a few more people, which will be nice. The other major event, this past month, which I managed to squeeze out for out, out which I managed to squeeze out for for a weekend, was of course Operation Market Laden. Uh, so I took, as is my want at this point, a game because I like umpiring. See, end of podcast for a discussion on that. Uh, which was a nice little uh, fifteen mil Italy forty four because that's one of my favourite little areas game which basically was an encounter between two small recce forces where i think the the nastiest thing on the table by the pit and the panzerfaust was a cup was a platoon of uh sdkfz 250s with uh 20 mil cannon uh which gives you an idea of how light a force on both sides the british had bren carriers and the vickers and the germans had had the uh ftkfz 250s and a couple of 42s and, and yeah, it was fun. There's a very nice review of it. Thanks, Rob Avery, uh, on on his Vislardica site, which I will link to in the show notes. Okay, other hobby-related things. As I mentioned in the news section, I have finally acquired the... Um, Warworld Scenics layering spray for use with their static grass applicator, which I've actually had for a while. And boy, is it a revelation. As I said before, if you check my blog, there is a video on, on how it does, but fundamentally, you can produce really thick, really lush, or not, grass with, with multiple layers that will very nicely do for 28 and 15 mil tables. It doesn't look like you, it doesn't have the proverbial tennis court effect and very usefully as i discovered to my surprise doesn't come off now if you've ever seen the back of my car 
up until recently after I took the Omaha beach boards anywhere. It's usually covered in flecks of static grass. And and the the tester piece I did for the video, I commented at the time, we'll probably need a spray of PVA or something just to keep it on. But in fact, I was completely wrong. I've had that piece with me for the last couple of shows I've did to show and then trips I've done to show people. And it, it doesn't shift. You can you can pretty much scratch it with a nail and the grass will not come off. So I can thoroughly commend their layering spray. As I said, check out the video on the blog and see what you see. Other than that, so what have we got? The Games Workshop Contrast paints for an order. I've been putting together some Dark Ages Warriors to tart up my slightly tatty Ducks Brit Force. I've been doing odds and sods on the Ducks Britannia Compendium. I have recorded a video for the Little Wars TV folks, which hopefully will show, see the light of day at some point. I have managed to get the office that Ruben and P2 Collectibles used to use set up as both a gaming area and, where necessary, a video studio. So hopefully, once I'm a little happier with the things I'm doing, you might start to see some talking heads and possibly even some game demos, um, as well as the stuff I do with the camera over the workbench, uh, which should be fun, I guess. Um, I'm still not quite used to the idea of me in front of a camera, but um, <laughs> it's another motivation to go on a diet. By the way, I've lost 15 pounds since May. Go me. Blogwatch. Um, I'm going to blow my own trumpet. This month, I have started, for various reasons, a role-playing games blog. I don't expect it to be as regularly posted to as Trouble at the Mill, as, as you guys will pretty much always be my first audience. But I'm doing some stuff to resurrect uh, a role-playing campaign I used to run back in the 90s, uh, and being quite inspired by some of the newer tools that are out there, some of which you'll have seen passing mention of on Trouble at Mill. But if you are a role player as well as a wargamer, I'm going to try and keep the two separate. You may find a few places where I post a review on Trouble at the Mill and link to it on Sage DM or vice versa. But for the most part, I'm not going to not going to mix the two, but as I said, there are some things that are crossovers between the hobby, so I will. So you can find it at the Sage DM, all one word, .blogspot.com, posting frequency once a week, once every two weeks or so, usually when I get inspired to do stuff. So yeah, that's that. <laughs>
Hello and welcome to what I think we're resigned to calling the thinky bit now. As previously, you're now in a time warp in that I recorded this before all the preamble stuff. Simply because if I get unavoidably delayed in recording this and I've already recorded the other stuff, it rapidly becomes out of date. So, as ever, thinky bit first. And what we're going to talk about today, um, having been prompted to think about it by a few things that I've been doing of late, is umpiring and scenario design and scenario running. Now, pff, one of the many reasons I like the Lardy's games, and I'm not going to apologise for saying this, is that one of Rich's core tenets is that he likes your games to tell a story. Now, by this, uh, he means typically that you can look at the way the activation dice have gone or look at the way the command cards have been drawn and you can rationalise the events that have occurred uh, into some kind of narrative, which makes it just that little bit more than moving toy soldiers around on the table. Now, as you're probably also aware, I'm a, I wouldn't say frustrated GM. I'm a, I'm a amateur writer and I'm very much fond of being a D&D GM, although I haven't done it for a bit. And I enjoy as part of the DMing process, that aspect of telling the story that, that the thing I set the players is more than just 20 orcs against three heavily armed thugs. For whatever reason, the three heavily armed thugs might want to beat up the 20 orcs. So part of it is is all about the the concept of making your, your scenarios tell a story, if you like. Now, at the very least, uh, one of the things that bugs me about your typical... I don't want to say Games Workshop because that's unfair because they're not the only people who do it. But your your game designed for a club night where you dive at the back of the book, you reach for the table of what will be an interesting scenario to run, and you roll it up and you whap it all down at the table and the two of you beat each other up and there are no consequences, there is no story. Your armies are potentially fairly anonymous collection of um, thugs, <laughs> as said previously, and that's the end of it. And we're back, in fact, to that thing we discussed right in our very, very, very first episode, which was the concept of context. And, and this is, I think, it's becoming one of the key tenets of this podcast, is, is that it's as much as anything else about wargaming and context, whatever that context might be. So, um, as a GM and as, a, as an umpire, there are certain... If you like ground rules, I think I've probably set myself that that would be probably here is as good a place to share as any. I most of the Lardy's rules, about the only exception I can think to of this is Dux Britanniarum. I would be always much happier playing with an umpire, and I think part of the reason it's not necessary for Dux Brit is that the campaign system and the raid design almost give you that context for free, and there is less need to have an arbiter figure around to to resolve things like that. Now, obviously, that's not that's not the empire's only job, and, and I'd um, I would hesitate to say it was. But one of the things that that I find very rewarding in my job as umpire is that whole initial bit of working out what the scenario is and providing the player handouts, which are the thing the givers of context, if you like. Now, yeah, it's perfectly possible to run them without, but I, I find that 
I think my players get more out of it if if they turn up on the night or even get emailed in their inboxes sometime beforehand with a, a nicely prepared sheet which says, you are X, your mission is Y, uh, here are your forces, here are the things you need to know, here are any stats that are not easily found in the rulebook, and here are your objectives. And And part of that is to do with Again, it's just with context. If I find that if you tell players what they're trying to do, they will focus on that rather than just destroying the enemy to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, they may decide that the best way of achieving what they're doing is to make sure there's no opponents left to, avoid, to stop them doing it. And that's fine if that's the way they want to go. But if the objective is, say, to hold a bridge for five turns of the turn-end card... Um, going blazing out across the bridge and trying to kill everything when you've probably got in, in, inferior forces, that's the word I'm looking for, is probably um, not the smartest way of going about it. So that's step one. I think the key things in that are I try and keep the briefing in character. I will say you are X, your mission is Y, and I might even include some little... I feel like Don Featherstone snippets of dialogue from your CO or whatever. So in, and certainly I'll try and write it in an in an in-character kind of way. Um, the, the, the British briefing will quite often refer to the Jerry's or, or, or the Krauts or, or, or whatever. And, and if the Americans are around, they'll be the Yanks, that kind of thing. Just, just It's horribly stereotypical, I know. But it, it just gives that little bit of flavour that you are receiving a briefing from your CO, not, not from an anonymous piece of paper. And I, I think that helps. And equally, on a less storytelling a more game mechanic kind of way, certainly in I Ain't Been Shot Mum... One of the things that I always stick on, given the plethora of military hardware and unit qualities you can find in it, I've been shot is a whole is a weapons table for everything that they are likely to have access to, and their um, what's the word actions per actions depending on how many figures there are left in each of their various various units, because that's one thing that again you have to go digging in the rulebook if you don't know if you. Uh, are potentially unaware what quality of your troops are. Um, see previous discussions about AMB and Chopman. Having this information to hand is actually quite useful. And then, of course, obviously you include things in AMB and Chopman. You include how many blinds you've got, how often the blinds turn up, where you're supposed to deploy. In Chain of Command, obviously you include where your patrol markers start, how many patrol markers you get, your support options, etc., etc., etc. Essentially, what we're doing is trying to give give people uh, I, to be fair yeah we're trying to give people some command decisions before they even start because that i find that's fun and if particularly if you can dish those handouts out before your players have turned up for the evening then a they get to do some prep and b they're hopefully feeling a little more immersed in what's going to happen before it happens and of course the other thing you do is draw them a map now it doesn't have to be brilliant you don't have to go for the for the rich clark photoshop masterpieces that adorn the Lardy Specials and Scenario books. Um, I frequently do because I've got a nice little program called OmniGraffle on the Mac that allows me to draw gridded maps with symbol libraries. Um, but I may well start shifting towards using Wonderdraft, uh, which you should have heard about in earlier bits of this podcast, which is actually designed for RPG mapping, but comes with a bunch of tools for more 
um, top-down sketchy map things. And, you know, one of the things you're going to want that for is if there's any measure of advanced deployment that your forces need to do, or even just so your if there's multiple people managing one side, they can go off into a corner and plan while pointing at the map. And these kind of things are always good. And sometimes I've made it other things. Um, I ran one of Nick Skinner's scenarios from a Lardy special, Vacaville uh, 44, in which the Americans were trying to winkle the Germans out of a position. And I gave them some aerial reconnaissance photos suitably annotated from the National Archives, which which is brilliant. They're a great resource, which I really would commend to uh, anybody who's running World War II scenarios, particularly around D-Day, where there's, there's loads of uh, reconnaissance photos from American and British overflights before and just after D-Day. Um, and being able to hand out, you know, here's a recce photo that shows you roughly where the Germans are likely to be. Please plan your uh, deployments and, and attacks. Works quite well. It's quite fun. So that's another step. So, yeah, handouts. Essentially, I think it's worth the prep. In fact, let's face it, you're the umpire. I wouldn't dream of doing a D&D scenario on no prep, or, although I have, <laughs> uh, of which more some of the time because it's not really for this podcast. But I, equally, I wouldn't do an Iron Bean Shop one scenario on no prep. Parathetical aside, which reminds me I have to do one for Monday, as I promised Colin McKay if I ain't been shot one, which means I do have to write him a scenario, which means you guys may get to see it in a lovely special later. Anyway, so that's prep. The other two functions of the umpire are game management, which I'll cover next, and also knowledge management. Now I'll explain that one later, but but game management, fundamentally, I like to keep my players in a position where they don't have to spend too much time struggling with the rules or trying to decide what they can do, what they can't do. I'd much rather they said to me, I move these guys here and fire at that, and I'll say, fine, uh, it'll take you two actions to move there, you've got one die to fire, um, roll on the fire table, have a d6, kind of thing. And... It's all very well. Yes, you can you can make sure all the players have quick reference sheets, and if you really want to, you can as opponents can can do it. But I I find that I think it partly appeals to again to the storyteller in me that I can. There's there's something someone said about being a D and D DM, which is it's quite amusingly they put that you are a meatbag interpreter of the rules according to the players' will, and now that's considerably more in in D&D because obviously you as the DM present players with a challenge they tell you what they want to do you tell them what they have to do to do it and war games in and of itself you don't have to run that way we've always you know it's always been the case that there's only to stop the pair of you taking a set of rules and getting on with it but I find that um, particularly with any kind of newer player being able to just take their desires and interpret them with the rules makes for a much better flow of the game now, of course, that does come with the commentary problem that you know, players are at liberty to disagree with your interpretation of the rules. And, and I will freely admit I have a couple of players in various places who will do that, given every opportunity, particularly if they're, they genuinely just don't happen to agree with what I've said. And I think one of the rules that I make both as GM and as an umpire has to be that as an umpire... My interpretation of the rules is final. If you are unhappy with it, we'll discuss it later. Um, 
and possibly fix it for next time. But unless I've made an absolutely glaringly stupid mistake that's on the quick reference sheet, if if you're arguing about an interpretation or, or, or the like, I'd rather argue about it later because I don't want to disrupt the flow of the game and a 10-minute argument with someone over whether some particularly obscure piece of military hardware can do the thing they want it to or and what the effect is just detracts from the flow of the game and everybody else's enjoyment and and i'd rather i'd rather do that afterwards uh, of which more later but essentially yeah meatbag interpreter of the rules for the players it makes you it gives you better control of the flow of the game it means players don't have to think in terms players obviously inevitably will think in terms of of the rules but it allows you for it allows for them to think in terms of the the story, if you like. It allows you to say, "I'd like Big Man X to belt up here and be heroic," and you can you can say, "Well, he can do this, this, and this," and we'll see if you survive next to next turn to do the last thing you want to do, kind of thing. And and that that level of being the the interpreter of the rules, I think, I personally think, makes for a much more enjoyable game. Uh, the other thing that I mentioned earlier is knowledge management. Now, what I mean by this is war game scenarios are not and should not be perfect information games. Um, now, chess is a perfect information game. I know what you've got. You know what I've got. Everybody knows where everybody else's pieces are, and that's it. End of story. I know where your rook is. It's not going to go anywhere I don't expect. It's not going to suddenly disappear into hiding, um, except possibly in some interesting Star Trek chess variants. But fundamentally, it's a perfect information game. Wargaming, certainly any plausible representation of gaming a semi-realistic conflict, um, is not a perfect information game. You do not necessarily know where everyone is. And yes, it's perfectly possible for two players who are reasonably trusting to get round that, but you are fundamentally reliant on trusting your opponent that when he says, no, you can't spot anything in there for whatever reason, that he is he is being fair about it. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that people are consciously unfair, but it is quite easy to be uh, unconsciously slightly biased when you do this kind of thing. Now, as an umpire, then the particularly obvious example I'm talking about here is I ain't been shot on spotting rolls, and that I will know, for example, if the defenders have been right in positions on a map, I will ask for sight of that map as the GM, as the umpire, and then they can tell me when, 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 when their opponents say, we'd like to spot in that farm, I can say, nope, they can roll and I can tell them what they do or don't spot. Now, <laughs> the other thing that, that I like with that is that it allows you to possess pieces of information which neither player knows. For example, the scenario I've just run at Operation Market Laden, there's a lovely review of this up by Rob Avery, where the object of the exercise was to find a pair of downed German officers who'd crashed in a reconnaissance plane somewhere on the battlefield, on a fairly cluttered battlefield, so it wasn't immediately obvious where they or the plane was. And, yeah, let's, let's for the sake of argument, that doesn't have to be something that, that... In fact, that isn't something that players know. I mean, you don't put the crash torch on the table necessarily. You certainly don't put the, the downed officers on the table. And, and it's information that you can feed to the players both within and outside the rules framework. There is, for example, in that particular scenario, I'm, I'm, I have a set of notes on my phone that were waved at various people at various points, including such things as uh, the plane, the wreck 
appears to have come down in an attempt to make a landing um, on the road and shorn a wing off on a wall. No, there are no casualties in the wreck, but there is a small trail of flattened blood, crops and blood leading into the field. For example, rules don't cater for that, but you know I know where the where the German officers have bunked off to, uh, and it gives me the ability to insert um, that information into one or both players' data streams as and when fits the scenario. And, and I, I love that. That's definitely appealing to the DM in me. But, in fact, oh gosh, memories. Um, I don't know how many of my pl- listeners have played Ambush by Victory Games. To be absolutely honest, and, and it is entirely subconscious because I didn't think about it till the other day when Ambush happened to crop up in a different set of Google search results. Um, the opening scenario to Ambush does lend just a little bit to that scenario I own for OML. I'm not going to spoiler it for you, but one of the things that Ambush does is it has a it it has a game mechanic. It's designed for solo gaming, to be honest, and it has a game mechanic, a card and table and other clever shit driven mechanism for the Germans for to to interact with the player playing the the Americans and not everything is cut and dried and simple you're not it isn't just force a versus force b in a lot of cases you know you're you're advancing over over french countryside uh, post d day so yes there are going to be unexpected social interactions with french civilians uh, downed RAF pilots, who knows what. And the mechanic actually lends itself quite well to that, and I actually really enjoyed Ambush, and I'm very sorry I sold it. But that, that that's kind of the, the, the feeling I'm after. There is, I mean, if you look at something like uh, the Sharp Practice campaign book, there's all manner of interesting little um, not 100% designed to be part of the straightforward military objective things that you can stick in. And, and yes, you can run those between you and the your opponent without any help from a GM. But you are stuck with the point that not everything in that kind of war game is necessarily going to be attached to one side or the other. And having an umpire as a figure who can handle uh, the French NPCs, the Spanish Paris priest, whatever... I think becomes fun, and I, I get a massive kick out of that. I I will be openly honest that I cannot remember. Eh, maybe I can. Uh, I can't remember the the last time I played. I ain't been shot as a player because I enjoy umpiring it so much. I probably probably about four four years ago, maybe was was the last time I actually actively played. I ain't been shot mum with no umpiring investment. On a scenario written and either run by someone else or run against someone, I'm probably technically I will be doing it this this Monday against Colin. But even then, I will have written the scenario, so I'm going to try and write a scenario that doesn't matter that I know stuff where where necessary to to that I can keep hidden from Colin. Um, so it'll very it'll in some ways probably be a an umpired defence, if you like, in the same way that bloody Omaha was. We shall see. Um, now the other thing I that crops up we were discussing back in the discussion about the rules uh, rules interpretations etc one other thing as an umper that i think is really useful both for role-playing games and war games is have a debrief doesn't have to be much of one all i'm saying at this point is 
sit down, have a quick chat with the players afterwards, ask them how they thought it went, what was missing on the handouts, if anything, uh, what did you not understand, how do you feel the scenario was in terms of balance, etc., 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 because these kind of things just make you a better, better umpire, a better GM, if you can if you can turn that information into feedback to inform your next round of handouts, scenario design and umpiring generally, so much better. And of course, if you've had a debate about the rules, then go away, either either resolve it afterwards or go away and figure out what the correct answer is. Um, you will find, particularly the lordy rules, that the forums and the mailing list are a very useful source of people who do know what they're talking about, uh, even at the more obscure and, and gloomy ends of the rulebook. Um, and make sure that you fix it for next time. And that is that. That actually, I find, works really well. Just just that five minutes of if that of of okay. So, what do people think? You're not you're not fishing for compliments. You're fishing for feedback. Uh, and I think that's a very important thing to do if you want to become a better umpire or a better GM for that matter. Is to figure out what works, what doesn't, by talking to the people who've been involved with it. So yeah, um. Umpiring, there you go. I love it. I wouldn't... I do enjoy being a player, but the the storyteller in me uh, enjoys being an umpire as much, if not more, because I can tell the story, and I can tell the story for other people. And that's just me, I guess. Okay, there we go. That's this episode's Thinky Bit. That'll be it for now. So that's it for another episode. I hope to get the next one out by, let's say, the middle of August, for the simple reason that I'm off on holiday for two weeks in mid-July, in which, apart from anything else, I'm hoping to catch up with Dave Churchill of the Lardies in Kansas City, and also the ATF folks in Minneapolis, that's Jeff Newsden and friends for what I suspect will be an interesting game of Napoleonics. And, well, any hobby-related activity I do there is likely to be constrained to doing a bit of scribbling on the Ducks Britannia and Compendium on a morning while Annie's getting up and making a tea in the hope that I can get a fair amount of that done ready for when we get back when hopefully my partner in crime will have got over strange and complicated things like moving house and be ready to give me a bit of a hand with some playtesting off and on. So, uh, that's it for this episode, which only remains then for me to say good luck and roll good dice. Miller's Tale is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Thank you.